The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is really about all the ramifications of Roe versus Wade and the idea of, you know, privacy rights for women and their body. And we are going to be interviewing a wonderful guest coming to us from Washington, D.C. Jamil Fields Albrook is the Director of Women's Health and Rights with the Women's Initiative at American Progress. There, she oversees policy development and strategic planning related to advancing and defending women's health and rights. So prior to joining American Progress, Jamil was a senior policy analyst at Planned Parenthood Federation of America. There, she worked to to improve productive health care access for low-income people, women, and young people across the country. Specifically, her portfolio focused on health care reform, including the Affordable Care Act, implementation and defense, uh, private insurance, refusal causes, and patient confidentiality, among other really important issues. Also, she previously held a clinical fellowship at the Harvard Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation and a teaching law clinic where she supervised students while maintaining a portfolio focused on healthcare access and social detriments of of health for people living with chronic illnesses such as HIV. She is also the recipient of the If, When, How Productive Justice Fellowship. Through that fellowship, she worked at the National Health Law Program to increase health care access for low-income populations and improve public and private coverage of reproductive health care. She also has a law degree and she, with a certificate in health law studies and a Master of Public Health from St. Louis University. She has a bachelor's degree, degree in journalism from the University of Missouri and she teaches a course on healthcare reform at the University of Maryland School of Law. So she has done so many really wonderful things to per, for consumer rights and especially for women's rights. We're so thrilled that she is joining us. You can find out more about her at privacypiracy.org and also at americanprogress.org. So we link to uh, from Privacy Piracy org to her website, show her picture and her bio, and she is amazing. And we are just thrilled to talk to her because there is a huge case coming up before 
the U.S. Supreme Court. We're going to talk about that. So, Jamil, thank you so much for joining us from D.C. Thank you so much for having me, Mari. So, okay, some big stuff is coming up. Can you give an overview of the June medical case and the law in question? Sure. So June Medical uh, v. Russo, uh, but folks might have seen it in the media as June Medical v. G because the name of the case just recently changed. Um, But it is the first major abortion case before the Supreme Court since the appointments of Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, so since the court has become even more conservative-leaning. And that case involves a a state law uh, out of Louisiana uh, that seeks to require an abortion provider to have admitting privileges within 30 miles of where an abortion is performed. And the court is going to hear uh, whether or not uh, that such a law would burden a person's constitutional right to an abortion. Um, And I'll pause there because not everyone might be familiar with um, uh, admitting privileges. So, uh, you know, if you go to your your provider, being able to admit someone to a hospital might not sound like a big deal and might not sound like something that would burden the right to uh, an abortion, um, but it really could. um, And that is because um, it's very very difficult for abortion providers to get admitting privileges uh, at a hospital. One, um, admitting privileges um, are usually granted if there are frequent, you are frequently going to be sending patients and Abortion is an extremely safe procedure, so um, most, um, a lot of hospitals won't give admitting privileges to abortion providers. And the other reason is that, um, uh, a, a, you know, there's abortion stigma out there, obviously, and so some hospitals just won't want to deal with the potential backlash of having an abortion provider have admitting privileges or given um, a lot of, in a lot of communities, a religiously affiliated hospital is the only hospital uh, in, in, uh, in that area, and so they might not grant admitting privileges to abortion provider. And so for that reason, the court is going to consider whether or not um, a law like this uh, would uh, burden um, uh, the right to an abortion as uh, guaranteed to us by Roe v. Wade. And so the court is um, considering that and heard oral arguments um, just a few days back on March 4th. And so, uh, you know, we don't expect a decision before June, but that's what they're considering. Right. And so, yeah, if you're a doctor, for example, this is this can happen to anyone in terms of if you don't have admitting privileges, just so that people understand about admitting privileges. You know, I know one of our relatives, you know, has a great doctor, but they didn't have admitting privileges to the to where he was in the hospital. And yes. so he couldn't go in there. And so then you have to get a new doctor. So that's a problem. And then a lot of the abortions take place in abortion clinics, just like people get outpatient surgery that you get it in a clinic that you go to. So they wouldn't need to necessarily have um, admitting privileges. So it puts a burden on the doctor as well, right? Yeah, that's definitely, that's exactly it. You know, um, many of us might be familiar with the concept of it. Might not know the term admitting privileges, but you know, you know, whether you were a person who went and had a baby or you had a, um, for some other reason, had to go from like your primary care doctor or your OBJYN and you needed to meet them at a hospital. It might not be the one closest to you. You might say, why can't I just go down there? And it's because they have to go where they have admitting privileges. 
But, um, and, you know, in those kind of situations, those doctors frequently send patients to hospitals, and so they have a working relationship with hospitals. Abortion providers are unique in the respect that their patients don't need to go to the hospital. It's very few instances where there is um, some sort of medical emergency. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times hospitals just like it's a business decision to not give admitting privileges because you don't need to come here. Right. So what do you think was really the um, the purpose behind the Louisiana Act 620? Do you think it was yeah. to, yeah, I mean, what was the underlying action yeah. there? So these laws, so, you know, not to pick on Louisiana because Louisiana is not the only state right. who has made such a laws, but it is problematic and they have passed this law. But, you know, these is an example of uh, what we call trap laws, which are targeted regulation of abortion providers and, and and other restrictive laws on abortion that are really created under the guise of, you know, we're protecting women's health. Um, however, these laws have, you know, one intent and that is to close um, abortion centers and to limit uh, access to abortion. We've seen these laws come up and proliferate since um, the you know 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, where you know anti-abortion um, people and, uh, and um, anti-choice advocates have used it as a strategy to you know they can't overturn Roe v. Wade. Right. They surely can limit it and and make it not accessible. And so, you know, we we know that that is sort of the underlying motive because we've seen multiple medical organizations like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists who have official statements saying, you know, these these laws are not necessary. There's nothing right. related to women's health or people's health that makes these laws necessary. Um, and uh, the effect of these laws have been in many states to close uh, health centers. And we could talk about more about some of those. But, you know, just to be clear, you know, these laws come in, in many forms. You know, there are restrictions around abortions at certain weeks. There are bans on certain types of abortions. There are bans on having abortions for particular reasons. You know, abortion, you know, it's no, no breaking news that it can be um, a controversial issue. Issue, but there is no other health care service where you will see these sorts of regulations be allowed and proliferated um, that have nothing to do to do with health care. You know, even in Louisiana, they have a number of other restrictions that have already limited abortion access. They have a ban on abortion after 20 weeks. They have a ban for later term abortion. They have a ban. They have a 24-hour waiting period. Mm. Um, they have a requirement that you have to get ultrasound and counseling, restrictions on insurance coverage, you know, you know, all just things to sort of uh, if you know can't undo the right, um, undermine it. You know the uh, friends at the Guttmacher Institute um, noted that in 2019 alone, 17 states have enacted 58 abortion restrictions, wow. and that number is an increase from 2018. And the on, and the change we've noted is that the makeup of the court has changed, and right. so states have been more emboldened to pass these laws, thinking that you know that previously would have been obviously unconstitutional. Um, to sort of think that they can kind of get away with that. Right, right. Now, in 2016, the Supreme Court decided a case called Whole Woman's Health versus Helderstadt, where they struck down an identical law out of Texas. So what is the difference in this case? How is this different? 
Well, there's no difference, which is why it's so, <laughs> no. um, it's interesting that we're here in front of this this in the court because you know in Whole Woman's Health, um, the court Texas passed the law HB two that was identical to the Louisiana law, uh-huh. and there the uh, that law would have required facilities to have. Um, requirements such as be like an ambulatory surgical center and also to have admitting privileges within 30 miles of the clinic, which is the exact same thing Louisiana is trying to do, right. require providers to have admitting privileges within 30 miles. And the Supreme Court struck it down. Uh, the Supreme Court found that it violated um, uh, the undue, undue burden standard imposed upon a person's right to an abortion. Um, and so, you know, it would seem like, well, what's the issue with the court? So why did they, to, yeah, I mean, should they, they have even taken this case because it's already pre, it's precedent? Yeah, well, I mean, so the Fifth Circuit had uh, ruled um, decision was contrary to the Supreme Court's ruling. So the Fifth Circuit um, ruled that the uh, had upheld the Louisiana law. <laughs> so it's good, excuse me that the Supreme Court has taken up this case, but it shouldn't even be an issue. It should have been something that they could easily get struck down. And so it mm. should be that we should have no concern. But as I mentioned, the makeup of the court has changed. Um, and there um, in Texas, um, the court, even though they struck down uh, the the law, right. um, it still had the impact for the few years that it was in effect to um, uh, reduce the number of abortion facilities. So between 2013 and 2015, the numbers reduced by half. And mm. even uh, four years later, um, those centers have not come back. And that's because, you know, it's not just that easy. Once you close down, you right. can't to open up reopen the high staff. And yeah. so on and so forth. So still now it's only 22 clinics where before that law it was 40 clinics. So, um, you know, it should be a pretty open and shut case. But uh, it also the reason we got there is because of this adverse Fifth, fifth Circuit opinion mm. um, and uh, where they you know, just completely disregarded the Supreme Court precedent in whole women's health. And we hope that the court will um, rebuke that sort of disregard for its president and, and uphold its previous rulings. But as I mentioned, the court makeup has changed. Yeah. So what would happen to abortion access if the Supreme Court really allowed this law to go forward and into effect? Yeah, so abortion access is already very limited, um, you know, particularly in Louisiana um, and other surrounding states in the South and in the Midwest. Um, and, you know, the real fear is that an adverse ruling could embolden more states with anti-choice legislators to promulgate restrictive abortion laws and think that, you know, they can ignore previous Supreme Court precedent and ignore, you know, the foundational cases of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, And and as I said, whole women's health that was just decided um, uh, less than four years ago. And so, you know, uh, uh, again, a study out of the Guttmacher Institute said that there's 89% of counties in the U.S. do not have an abortion clinic. So, Mm. uh, you know, it's already very limited. And for that reason, many people have never been able to 
to access and get the true fulfillment of what the promise of what Roe v. Wade means. And the concern is that this will just allow states to go even further. And in particular in Louisiana, um, the district court had found that Louisiana would be left with just one clinic and Ugh. one provider for one million women of reproductive oh age God. in the state. Yeah. And they would join um, six other states, all in the South or Midwest, who have one abortion clinic. Mm. And, um, you know, and if other states start adopting these this sort of Louisiana trend and behavior, we could see, um, you know, access to abortion very, very almost decimated for people um, in, in Louisiana and, and the other surrounding states who send, you know, because their other states are also not that good on abortion right, access, right, right. frequently patients from uh, uh, Arkansas, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and East Texas, you know, the plaintiff in this case, so they see patients from all of those states. So it will impact not just Louisiana as a direct uh, sort of result of an adverse ruling, but even more concerning about the precedent it would set for all the states to think that they could take, um, you know, clearly unconstitutional actions. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about what that really means. So how are people's lives impacted when they're forced to delay or be, you know, unable to even access abortion care? Yeah, sure. So that's a good question. So, you know, there has been a number of studies that have shown about how people, particularly women's um, uh, health, finances, um, and uh, just clearly their bodily autonomy is impacted by an adverse, uh, by not being able to access an abortion. So, you know, first is just that, uh, you know, a right to bodily autonomy. You know, I know this show is called uh, Privacy, uh, Privacy Piracy. Piracy and, yeah. you know, the reason why the right to an abortion came and it stems from that right to uh, privacy and that right, right to control your own body. And so, um, you know, chipping away is a direct tack, obviously, on your bodily autonomy. But there's also real practical uh, consequences for not being able to access an abortion. There was a landmark turnaway study that found that women denied abortions are more likely to suffer health consequences such as eclampsia and even death, um, more likely to experience certain mental health issues and stay in abusive relationships because they feel like they can't leave as a result of the pregnancy. We here at the Center for American Progress um, published a study a couple years back that found that women living in these states with trap laws are less able to transition between jobs um, and uh, women living in states with better access to reproductive health care generally have higher earnings and face less occupational segregation, less likely to stay in poverty. So, you know, your ability to control your uh, your body and your health, your economics really has wide-ranging implications for the the woman and a person accessing abortion, but also for a family and community writ large. Let me tell you a story that my mother-in-law had told me. Um, her favorite aunt had three children or four children, I think it was, and her husband died and he, she got pregnant before he died. And so she wanted an abortion because, number one, she couldn't afford to have another child. And it was just mm -hmm. too much. She was going through death and everything like that. So she, there, it wasn't legal at that time. Mm -hmm. And so she was living in Brooklyn and had one of these um, back streets, you know, oh, wow. uh, thing, and she died. So here she died, oh. and she left three little kids. 
and oh. just trying to get an abortion. And my, I remember my mother-in-law telling me this so that when Road, Road versus Wade came into being, she was so happy because she thought she never yeah. wanted it. It was just devastating for the entire family. And these three little kids grew up without yeah. a mom. And oh, so, okay. you know, if, if if people think, well, if we don't make it legal, they're not going to get it. But that's not yeah. true. No, that's totally not true. And I'm thank you so much for sharing that story. But, you know, it, and it is true that people have always gotten abortions, let's right. be clear, before 1973, and we'll continue to get them. And we want to make sure that they are legal and accessible and also and done um, correctly so that people don't die you know that that you know it's in a in a facility that is licensed right? right and it's also to be clear that the people who will be most impacted and most unable to get an abortion because they don't have the resources to go even travel, you know, lower income people, younger people. To go to another state or to yeah, another young country. People who, right. Yeah, people who already face barriers, communities of color. And so abortions will happen. It will just be um, left for relatively few are privileged to be able to get them in, you know, safe legal spaces. And the other thing is, you know, these conservatives who, um, you know, who, who yell about, oh, we don't want to give women choice to do that, then, you know, they don't want to give them welfare if they can't afford it. So, I mean, it, it makes yeah. no sense when they want to limit birth control and then they want to limit the right to choose about about their body. I mean, it just makes no sense. I think it's more about controlling women. Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah, no, definitely. I definitely think it is. I mean, and I also think that it is a, it's a reason why these restrictions, so you have restrictions on insurance cover that coverage that target low-income people on Medicaid, and you have restrictions of people in the South. You know, these are usually populations that are lower income, uh, black communities, Latino communities, and women, just women generally who are, get this perception Minorities. that they can't otherwise control their bodies. Right. And so I think, I think it's a very targeted targeted attempt and and why why we see these things happen yeah and then they they seem to forget that these kids have to be raised they have to be fed right yeah yeah <laughs> you know? it makes you question what is what does it mean to be, be pro-life yeah exactly exactly okay so um does this case have broader implications though on the right to privacy it, it really does doesn't it yeah, for sure. You know, as I mentioned, um, you know, the uh, right to privacy underlines the right to abortion, but it has also underlined a lot of other major cases uh, that people and rights that people are probably even more familiar with. The right to access contraceptives and Griswold and um, Amstead were all under the right to privacy. Lawrence v. Texas, which was a case that struck down a Texas statute that criminalizes sex between gay people um, that also ultimately was used in Oberfeld v. Hodges are all foundational under the right to privacy. And so if we see the right to privacy being chipped away for abortion rights, it is very concerning about what that means for the right to privacy writ large and, um, you know, and also just what it means for precedent setting, right? You know, this case is um, uh, the American Bar Association submitted an amicus brief for this case, and this is the very first time they've submitted an amicus on abortion. And the reason is because they have broader 
concerns about what it means for the rule of law. What does it mean for privacy and other rights if you can the Supreme Court disregards a decision it made less than um, four years ago? And also there is another issue in this case um, that the state have brought around third-party standing where they're essentially trying to argue that, um, you know, as a general rule, you have to be the impacted party to bring a claim. Uh, but there's an exception for third-party and many frequently providers and health centers have been able to bring claims both in the context of abortion but in the context also of other uh, rights uh, for contraceptives, even in education, housing, criminal justice, where other third parties have been able to enforce uh, rights of others. And so they're challenging that. And so it has oh. could have huge broad implications beyond just the right to an abortion, though that's obviously what is key on the chopping block. Yeah, it's really scary to, you know, when you think what, you know, you and I both went to law school. So, you know, we know how important precedent is and they have to really find a good reason to overturn. And, um, you know, I think the the reason that's going to be over, if it's overturned, is going to be politics, right? I mean, it's it's just unfortunate. And and I think when you were talking about, you know, the right to get um, uh, contraceptives, there have been you know, laws that have been proposed that say that, and I, and I don't know if this passed and you would know this, is that, you know, um, if if someone works for a governmental agency, they they can't get their, uh, their birth control pills paid for. And I don't know if that passed or not. You know, it's actually great to mention it's very relevant. So it was the Trump administration actually issued a couple rules to right. say that employers, not just government agencies, but a wide range of employers, almost any employer or university could say that they have an objection, moral or religious, to um, covering birth control. And that case is actually before the Supreme Court. They just decided to take it up at the end of April. And so mm-hmm. That'll be another issue, April So you're going to be running over there for that, too. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, uh, reproductive rights writ large are at the top block, not only for uh, abortion, but also, like as you mentioned, for contraceptives, very directly and also broadly about just precedent and what that means. I think sometimes people think, you know, um, especially if you are are not in the legal field, I think that cases are sort of singly just this is the issue, but we all know know that once a precedent is set, especially at the Supreme Court level, um, it is can have rippling effects. And yeah. we think June Medical definitely could have rippling effects. Yeah. It's almost like they want to keep us barefoot and pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, seriously, it makes no sense. They, they don't want to give a woman the choice to, you know, have an abortion. So, you know, birth control should be much more available you know, I'm, I think, I don't know what the studies are, and you probably would know it, but, you know, the fact that birth control uh, was readily available, didn't that really cut down on unwanted pre- pregnancies over these years? Oh, oh yes, for sure. Um, actually, um, 
you know, the, we are right now at the lowest level of uh, uh, teen and unplanned pregnancies that, it, that we have ever been, and uh, contraceptives have been the result of that, you know. Yeah. And we think that, you know, just from a broader standpoint, access to contraceptives and abortion should be, you know, it's a person's individual decision um, and it's health care and that, that you know, we sh- people should be able to access either one, um, exactly. whatever a person needs, whatever time they need. So it's interesting that um, we're expecting that sometime in June we'll hear about this case, about the mm-hmm. the abortion clinics, and then they're going to hear arguments in April on the other one. Would they be coming out at the same time or? It possibly. It possibly could come out at the same time. You know, we don't know, you know, the Supreme Court can issue a ruling whenever they sort of feel, but the trend has been they usually issue them right before the term ends, which is June, and they send them send them all and then they go away oh. and they we go back to this next year. But, um, yeah, it possibly could be in, in June around the same time. And so, um you know, it's something for those who are care about reproductive rights and bodily autonomy and just generally care about privacy, recommend people pay attention and think about. And there's also another case, too, that relates to um, reproductive justice also the court is considering. It's actually, it's it seems slightly different. It's an employment case, but they're considering um, uh, an issue around the definition of sex. Um, it, it's a case involving oh, a transgender person. Right. And so all of those are interlocking reproductive right, health rights and justice cases. Right. And, you know, we could see them all around around June. Well, that we are the perfect way to end. Uh, we'll have to have you back in June to talk about this. <laughs> I hope it'll be something that we can be uh, pleased about. And, yeah, but we got to keep our fingers crossed and pray and all that good stuff. So thank you so much. I want you um, to please, Jamil, give your website and it's time to go. Great. Yeah, it's AmericanProgress.org. And thank you so much for having me, Mark. Okay, Jamil, keep in touch, okay? Thanks so much. Yes, but- <laughs> okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 